Welcome to the Grace Vineyard Podcast, where we are building growing communities of worshipers who are becoming like Christ, empowered to do His work. We hope you enjoy this message. So there is a book in the Bible, kind of right before Psalms, named after the guy that wrote it, and basically it's his memoirs. And Nehemiah was around, well, this period was around 445 B.C., and he appears at a time in history that was um, really important, crucial time of history. And you all have Netflix? So that was one of the, the blessings of um, COVID for our family. We got Netflix and two cats. <laughs> so it was good. And my son got his license. So it was good all around for the O's family. Anyway, um, have you seen, those of you that have Netflix, this, um, I think it's on Netflix, a series that's something like called The Greatest Events of World War II in Color. Have you seen that? Isn't that, isn't that great? It's really amazing. Um, history, documentary, interesting. I wish we had that for what we're going to talk about in the time frame of Nehemiah. Because it is absolutely just as interesting. There's nations and players and things that are happening. And it's all guided by the hand of God and all worked directly into his purposes. For those of you that might be new to the Bible and not realize this, the Bible does tell historical stories of God's working in the world through people that he's rescued to himself and he's using to rescue others. But it's a story of God's rescue through a particular group of people, but it involves nations and God kind of working things together around the world. Well, in the time of this guy named Nehemiah, the Persian Empire is expanding. The Persian Empire around his time was the biggest empire in the history of the world up to that time, if, I, if I'm remembering right. And a king a little bit before Nehemiah named Cyrus expanded the empire. So th there was the Babylonian Empire, but now there's the Persian Empire has taken over Babylon. And it's, it's kind of centered in where Iran is right now, uh, the Persian-speaking world. So have, you, have any of you heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Because that's around this time. Have you ever heard of Daniel in the lion's den? Have you heard of Queen Esther? So all these stories all take place around this kind of time frame in this area where God is at work fulfilling his plans for the people of Israel, but the people of the world. So there's this, the whole world. So there's this guy named Nehemiah who is the cupbearer to the king in Persia, which means that he is like the right-hand man to the king. And he, and he has an opportunity that comes to him to experience something that God cares about deeply, and then after having this burden of the Lord, be invited into fulfill his role in what God wants to accomplish. Does that sound familiar to your life? That's how already it's going to be connecting to us. So we're going to find practical lessons by reading this dude's memoirs of how we can be a people who can rise up and take our place when God is about to build something. And God is often in world history about to build something in people's lives, in nations' lives, in communities. And Nehemiah is a guy who is positioned well to receive God's 
compassion, respond to it, make it his own, enter into a life of prayer, and then find a calling, an invitation. So I call this, today's um, talk, the burden and the call. But the overall series is called Taking Your Place When It's Time to Build. So I mean, I, I'm going to have to take a, a little chunk of time here to give you an overview of the history so that we know what we're talking about and why it's important. So you, you, you good class? This, this stuff, by the way, is so fascinating, and I, I hope I can do it justice. I mean, this is like really interesting stuff. So I should pray. How about that? Lord, would you help us? We're going to read your word. We're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about the history of your workings in the world, and we need you to speak to us and help us grow. We want to be transformed by the living word of God. So we come to you with faith and ask you, open up your word, speak to us individually, like only you can do by your spirit, individual application, response for us, and then corporately, your word for us is a community. Come and speak to us over the course of this time, we pray in Jesus' name. So I mentioned, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Esther. Let me just say, for those of you that like to read the Bible and study, you want to go deeper, if you would do yourself a favor, it would be this. Open up your Bible this week and read some short books in the Old Testament. And they're, they're the kind of books you could read in one setting. They're fast-paced, interesting. One would be the book of Esther. One would be the book of Daniel, which is like my son, 16-year-old son's favorite book in the Bible. So interesting what happens there. The book of Daniel, the book of Esther, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah. They all talk about God's time of restoration. So for those of you that might not know the, the kind of the history, the arc of the Bible, it's important to know this. God creates this nation, Israel. Eventually, there's civil war, and the nation becomes two nations called Israel and Judah. Is, there were 12 tribes. You've heard that language, the 12 sons of, um, of Israel. And the 12 tribes to the north, I mean, 10 tribes to the north became called Israel. The two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, became called Judah. Um, they are in covenant with God. They've come out of slavery in Egypt. They've been formed into a nation. They've become a world power. All is good, but God had warned them. I'm giving you a covenant. If you break my rules, if you rebel against me, punishment and judgment will come against you. And he predicted in the time of Moses, this will happen if you break the covenant. Sure enough, they did everything they could to break every law that God ever gave them, which did a good job of showing us our need for a savior. That's what the law does. You bring the law and generally you break the law. That's kind of how it works. And then it's all of it points to our need for the coming Messiah, who will change our heart by writing his law in our hearts. And we talked a lot about that when we were talking about grace. Okay, so there's, there's this coming judgment. Prophet after prophet comes. Eventually, around 740 B.C., Israel, the ten tribes to the north, are taken away in exile to Assyria. Now, when there is a nation at this time of history that wants to overpower its enemies, what they'll do is they'll come and they'll exile all the people, take them out of their land, and basically removed from history, the culture, the memory of those people. So they will never, ever be a problem to the conquering nation, right? So when that happens to you, you're done. Your history is done. Your nationality is gone. And God tells the people, you are going to be taken into exile. But he tells them this, Judah, but I'm going to bring you back, which never happens. 
So the 10 tribes that went into Assyria in 740 BC, we call them the lost 10 tribes. Because we don't really know what happened. I mean, Samaria was repopulated with kind of this mixed race. But Judah, God says, this is Judah, the place where the Messiah is going to come from. God says, you're going to be exiled, but you're going to come back. Prophet Jeremiah is one in particular that talks a lot about this. I want to quote to you a um, verse that you've heard out of context in Christianity. But I'm going to give you a little bit around it, knowing that it's about punishment, judgment, and a promise of return. Listen to this verse, and you'll hear about the second sentence, what you've heard before. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. That follows him just having said, you're going into exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's the one you recognize, right? Then you'll call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. So that's the context of that verse. Jeremiah prophesies, you're going to go into exile. Um, the other prophets even name it. Isaiah says, the person who's going to come and conquer you is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to be taken into captivity, and you're going to be brought back out. Nehemiah is at the time when they are becoming coming back and repopulating Judah. So that's why it's important in history. So I'm going to give you now a bunch, about eight, I think, of um, historical events that bring us up to Nehemiah. You doing good? Okay. So there's going to be a, a little graphic with just um, eight or so. 605 B.C. is the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And at that time, 605 is when he takes Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some other young folks, in, and they're exiled to Israel, I mean, to, to Babylon. They're trained in the ways of the Babylonians, their language, their culture, their history, and they're put in positions of leadership in Babylon. Daniel, in particular, becomes, because of his gift of interpreting dreams, and you might remember those stories of him interpreting some dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has, he becomes elevated to, like, the person who oversees all of Babylon. Now, Daniel is going to stay alive, serving kings in Babylon all the way up to about the time of Nehemiah. So this all overlaps. 586 BC, about 20 years later, is when, after even more prophetic warnings, the judgment comes, and the, the fall of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar brings his armies in, and they lay waste to Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They burn it to the ground. This is Solomon's temple, the one that had all the gold. So, so Nebuchadnezzar's army destroys the temple. Um, so worship's gone now. Takes back about 40,000 exiles to Jerusalem. I mean, to, to, I said it wrong, sorry, to Babylon. Um, he takes uh, the, the gold goblets and the plates and the utensils, all the things that are used for worship in the temple, and he puts them in the in one of his gods' temple back in Babylon. This is not a good day for Israel. But there's this, this Judah, there's this promise. Seventy years after this, you're going to come back. So 539 B.C. is the next time. This is about 50 years later. Cyrus of Persia comes in and conquers Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, his son or grandson, it's a little confusing in the history, Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. And... Um, Cyrus the Persian overtakes him. This story is so cool, i got to tell you this story. 
You know the story. Do you know the story of Belshazzar when he, you know, so, so Belshazzar is like grandson probably of Nebuchadnezzar. He's throwing a party, a drinking party, a bad debauchery filled party with all the royal officials. And he goes, you know what? We have those gold vessels that were, came from that temple in Jerusalem. Why don't you go and pull them out? I want to drink wine out of, the, out of Yahweh's goblets. He starts, have you read this story? You guys, this is history. This actually happened. He's, he gets, he's partying, and he's, he's offering um, praise to the god of gold and the god of silver and all his gods, right? These, um, these pagan gods. And all of a sudden, a hand appears and starts writing on the plaster of the wall. A hand, a finger. Picture that. Like, we're throwing this party, and it's like E.F. Hutton's in the room. It falls silent. And they're like, oh, and there's a hand writing on the wall, and it says these words that none of them know what it means. Mimi, Mimi, Kekel, Parson. And they're like freaking out. So, so, you know, they have advisors, wise people, magicians, counselors, you know, and sorcerers, whatever they have. And Belshazzar says, bring all the wise men and interpret this, this for me so we know what it says, because they're like freaking out. There's a hand writing on the wall, and none of them can figure it out. And he says, you know, if you can, if you can tell me what this means, I'll give you a gold chain and a royal robe, and I'll make you third in the kingdom. And the queen mother comes in, and she goes, why are you all worried? There was this guy that worked for Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather. He could interpret dreams. His name's Daniel. You should get him. He'll be able to interpret this. So they bring in Daniel. He's an old man now. He's, he was taken into exile when he was a kid. By the way, God is sovereign and arranged all this to happen on his timetable when he wanted to, which makes it so exciting. So he brings in Daniel, and he says, you know, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And Daniel says, you can keep all your stuff, but I'll tell you what it says. He's, by this time, he's done this so many times with king after king. And he goes, Belshazzar, your father or grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, was given authority by God to be a king over many kings. He fulfilled prophecies. And he got filled with pride and arrogance, and God humbled him. And he was smart enough to repent and give glory to God. But you, even though you knew that, you knew what happened, to your grandfather, you did not humble yourself, but you took God's vessels and offered praise to your gods of silver and gold, which aren't even gods. Therefore, God has judged you, and this is what it means. Many, many means you've been measured. You've been weighed and found wanting. Parson, you're about to have your kingdom taken from you and split up for the Persians are going to come in and conquer you. That very night, Cyrus comes in and kills him with his viceroy Darius. You've heard of Darius, some of you that have read the story. That very night, Belshazzar is out, Cyrus is in. This is 539 B.C. 538 B.C., the next year, Cyrus, don't know if he knew what he was doing or not, fulfills a prophecy. There was a prophecy that Isaiah said, this is like 150 to 200 years before the event. Before they've been exiled, Isaiah prophesies and calls that there will be a man named Cyrus who will be given authority by God to oversee kingdoms, and he will be the one who will declare 
that Israel should come back, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and the temple will be restored, and Cyrus is the one to make it happen. This is phenomenal, you people. 150 to 200 years before even they're taken into exile, Isaiah's prophesying, you're going to be gone into exile, and then I'm going to raise up a guy named Cyrus, and he's going to say, you should go back to the land, and he's going to say, let's build the temple. So 538 B.C., this, by the way, is in extra-biblical history, too. Remember what I said about how they would exile some, uh, a nation out of their land, destroy the religion, destroy the language, destroy the culture, then never come back? Cyrus has this new idea. He goes, you know, there's all these gods, and maybe if I'd send these people back and they would worship their gods, they could pray for me and I'd do better. And he makes, and this is written, and you can see it in, I think it's the British Museum, there's this cylinder that has Cyrus's decree on it. It's, other, it's not this exact decree, but it's other decrees. It's phenomenal. But here's the decree that's in the Bible that recorded of what he actually did. So it's written in Ezra's book. In the first year of Cyrus, and this one's going to be on the screen so you can read it too. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 538 BC, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the one that said 70 years and they'll return, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus the per of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Listen to these words that this Persian king writes. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in, Ju in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord God of Israel the God who is in Jerusalem, the people of any place where survivors may now live are to be provided with him with silver and gold, with goods, livestock, freewill offerings to the temple of the God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah, Benjamin, the priests, and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. This is phenomenal. Sends them back. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, goods and livestock with valuable gifts, in addition to freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, those very things that Belshazzar just was using to mock God and brought judgment on himself, and they sent him back. And it lists the, the numbers. There's 5,400 articles of silver and gold and bronze back at the temple. Isn't this phenomenal history? That's 538 B.C. Now go forward a few years, 515 B.C., there's been some starts and stops with the building of the temple, but the temple is completed. It's dedicated 515 B.C., and guess what happened? Passover celebrated in Jerusalem 70 years after it was destroyed, just like God said. Now moving forward, 473 B.C., Queen Esther becomes the queen of Persia. Isn't that amazing? This is this history. This is why I want to watch the movie, the events of you know Ezra and Nehemiah in living color. Um, 457 B.C., Artaxerxes I would be Esther's stepson, okay? Esther's stepson, Artaxerxes I, king of Persia, issues a decree that's even better. He tells Ezra, a priest, and you read about this in the book of Ezra, I need you to go and take priests with you to your place in Jerusalem. The temple's built, but they're not, it's not enough yet. I want you to establish the worship of your God in your temple. Ezra goes back. Zerubbabel was the guy that built it. Now, Ezra goes back as a priest to reestablish worship, the Levitical priesthood, all the things that need to happen, and he tells him, would you please pray for me so I'll prosper. Then, 445 B.C. is Nehemiah, where we read the book that we're going to start reading.
Was that a fun history? Is that just not amazing? All this going on. Okay, so now we have to run into Nehemiah. The memoirs of this guy named Nehemiah. He's a Jew. He was born in exile. He's about 750 miles from Jerusalem. Not sure if he's ever even been there, but knows it's his history. Um, he's the king's cupbearer. A cupbearer in the Persian um, system is like an advisor to the king. He is the guy that you know of that drinks the wine before the king drinks the wine so that if it's poison, he dies and not the king, right? You know that story. Not a, a good job if there's going to be a poisoning. But I, best, I guess it would probably stop poisoning because they know, okay, we're never going to get to the king. We don't care about the cupbearer. But he's also has to be informed politically, has to know the laws of the land. He's really tight with the king. He's with them all the time. The law said he had to be good-looking. So I don't know how they figured that out, but that was in the Persians and the Medes' law. And he was probably as close to the king, more close to the king than anyone but the queen. So here is this Jew from exile in this position with the superpower of the world, King Artaxerxes. And, you know, if you're thinking, like you might be thinking, how is a Jew the cupbearer to the Persian king? That seems kind of strange. Well, the king's, as I said, his stepmother was Esther. <laughs> Do you see the hand of God in all of this? It's just thinking phenomenal what happened, what weaved together to get to where we're going to read now. So here's uh, what we read. Nehemiah, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. That's around November, December. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, this is, the, I think, the winter palace, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from, Judea, from Judah sorry, with some other men, and I questioned him, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. So what's happening over there in Jerusalem? The, people that, the, the poor people that stayed and the people that came back to rebuild the temple, what's going on there? And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. There's been a famine, there's poverty, there's a lot of trouble over in Jerusalem. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. A city without walls and gates is a city without defenses. They're in danger. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept the burden of the Lord. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now that's nice to say for some days. We're going to see that it was four months. He's calling out to God. Now, Nehemiah is not hearing news about the wall being broken down for the first time. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar went and sacked Jerusalem. He knows the walls have been broken down. Why all of a sudden is he so in tune that he's mourning and weeping? I think, and, and biblical scholars think, this is none other than the Holy Spirit taking hold of a person to share God's burden with a person, which is how God works. You may have experienced that from time to time. A problem that you knew about, or maybe you didn't know about, but you hear a problem 750 miles away. He's living in luxury. He's in the palace. He's like with, tight with the king and the queen. He does not have to worry about those folks in Jerusalem. He could just live his life in comfort. Maybe he could send a check. But he, he does not have to do what he's about to do, but he gets involved. He gets the burden of the Lord, and he begins to weep. He cries, he mourns, he prays. Um, what 
what might it look like to you in our context if we heard this image of walls broken down, trouble and disgrace? By the way, Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts. And in many ways, he will be a picture of the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives and our lives. So when I ask myself that question, what would it look like for me to experience what Nehemiah is experiencing? Because that's what I want to do, throw us into the story and see what we can learn. On a spiritual level, I think of people who have the temple of God, they have the Spirit of God, they've been born again, they've put their faith in Jesus, by grace they've been saved, they're right with God, but they've never grown spiritually, they've never, matured. They've never been to healing from the inside out, they've, they've never grown emotionally, and the Proverbs say, Proverbs 25, 28, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. They're like that. They're like a city without walls. They are ruled and reigned by fits of rage or jealousy. Have you met this kind of person who has no walls in their life? They are at the, so their soul's not formed. They're at the mercy of lusts and desire and addiction. Their, where their soul is, which is where your, your mind and will and emotions come together, your thinking and your ability to make choices, your social relationships, all work together to something we call the soul. Where that is, it's broken down, and their relationships don't work. They're in trouble and disgrace. They might have addictions. They might have no self-control. You know this person who the walls are broken down. So on a spiritual level, I think of that. But on a... On a um, kind of a more natural level, I think of the kind of experience that Ted Lawler had when God gave him the burden of orphans in Zambia and then gave him a call. It's, this, it's a Nehemiah kind of situation there. If you know the story, Ted is a um, man in his 60s pastoring a church. He gets invited to some uh, event, some conference where they present the needs of orphans in Africa, and Ted is hit by the Holy Spirit and begins weeping and drops to the floor and gets a call from God and God tells him, I'm going to send you to care for orphans in Africa. Furthest thing from his mind. And we now have breath of heaven. It's this, it's this to me it's this story. Or I, or I think of, I think if we hear about the victims of the horrific crime of human sex trafficking, we think that is someone who's in trouble, disgrace. They are like people without defensive walls. And, and possibly someone hears that story, gets the burden of the Lord, and begins to seek God for how they are going to be involved. God sometimes is ready to build. God was ready to build Jerusalem. When he's ready to build, he will call people and persons, individuals and peoples, to join him in his purposes. My question as we go through this is, how can I become the kind of person who is ready and prepared to receive the burden of the Lord and respond when he calls? Um, continue at verse 5. Then I said, he's going to give us his prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, 
who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and obey his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. He was holding some vigils even. I mean, he is praying and seeking God because he's got this burden and he just doesn't put it aside. He gives himself to it and seeks and prays. Night and day for your servants, the people of Israel. This, by the way, there's nine prayers in the book of Nehemiah, and this is a good model for praying. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself in my father's house, have committed against you. So he joins himself in humility to the sins of his people. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Say, by the way, what he's about to pray, he couldn't pray if he weren't also a man of the word. He knows what God has said. If you would like to pray with confidence, learn what God has said, pray what he says, and you'll know that you're praying according to his will, and you'll have confidence that what you're praying, you'll get. That's one of the biggest keys to effective prayer. Know the will of God, pray the will of God, you'll probably get what you're praying for. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. If you were unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Do you hear this appeal to God? Come on, God, these are your people. You redeem them. Have mercy, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Now, this is the memoirs of Nehemiah. He wrote down his prayer. He's, he's a good writer, too, because he's about to move us into a new place. Give your servants success today by granting him the favor in the presence of this man. And you get the impression he's about ready to walk into the throne room of the king of Persia and present his case. And that's precisely what happened. Because we see this, next line, I was cupbearer to the king. I mean, he's a good writer. He's letting us know, I've been praying this, but now I'm going to go before this man and ask for favor. And here's the man, the king, because I'm the cupbearer. Chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so this is now four months later. Nisan is like March and April. So he's been praying. He's been seeking God day and night. And we're going to tell from the context that he's also been asking God about a plan for what he could do to help solve this problem. God has a, a problem he wants to solve. He's got a brokenness he wants to mend. He's given a burden to a man named Nehemiah, who's just a cupbearer in the king's palace, but he feels the burden, he begins to pray, and he begins to develop before the Lord a plan. He takes four months to do it, and now he feels like it's time to bring it forward. This is how it works when God gives you a burden. It doesn't usually happen like that. There is time, there is prayer, there is counsel, there is seeking. Here he is. So, the, so I, I entered, um, wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, Note, I had not been sad in his presence before. You could lose your life for not smiling nicely in front of the king. So you don't look sad before the king. This is a risk he's about to take, and he's going to let it happen. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. It's working. 
He's wise. I was very much afraid because he could lose his life. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said, what is it you want? And watch this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. He's like in the moment, right? And he's like, God help me. You know that. <laughs> he slips one in. One more God, please don't let me kill. Please give me favor with this man. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Whoa. Now, there's no indication that Nehemiah knew a lot about supervising construction projects. And those of you that know Ted, our friend that I mentioned, Ted, if you're listening to this, sorry, but Ted is not like the most um, detail-oriented person. And what God has done through one man's vision is absolutely astounding. I've been there some years back and saw what was then. This village where they care for the poorest of the poor, orphans without hope or a future, who are now living in homes where there's this state-of-the-art school and computer lab and this beautiful church. And now the Hope Medical Clinic, by the way, that was the vision of Tracy right here to have a medical clinic. And she had a vision, right? And we just saw that the place is built. We saw a picture of it. And we saw that two weeks ago, the money came in to buy the supplies to furnish the medical clinic. That's another Nehemiah story, which has come from how many years of prayer, Tracy? Seven, how many? 17 years. The vision's now coming to reality because she got a burden from the Lord and began to pray. And now it's reality. This is that exciting? This is so cool. I love this. Okay, so please, the king, let me go rebuild it. And he asked me, well, how long will your journey take? When do you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He's obviously been thinking about this for these last four months. I also said, if it pleases the king, <clears throat> kind of clears his throat, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, all these other you know, little nations, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple. In other words, king, would you send me, and by the way, would you foot the bill? which is kind of cool. <laughs> you re this is the, the next in the generation of the people that have just destroyed the temple. Now they're going to pay for the rebuilding of it. I mean, it's just so cool. Um, to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residents I'll occupy. Here's a really important phrase. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So that's all I want to read, just some, some application points. I'm asking the question, how can I be the kind of person who can take my place when it's time to build? What, what Can I learn just some simple lessons here? God is always in the business of restoring. So there's brokenness everywhere, and God's restoring broken lives through you and me. 
He's always drawing people to himself, bringing healing, restoration, and growth in their life, salvation, sanctification, you know, becoming more like Christ so that he then invites them to partner with him in bringing more people into restoration. That way it grows until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the plan. I don't know that there's any other plan. God invites you. Come, follow me, Jesus says. We go, ah, sounds good. I want to be with him. But follow me is like follow the leader. And whatever the leader does, you do when you're following the leader, right? Did you ever play that as a kid? When the leader skips, you skip. When he hops, you hop. When he scissor steps, you scissor step because you're playing follow the leader, right? You did, you were ever kid? Oh, you were never kids. You were kids, right? You follow the leader, right? Jesus says, follow me. And that means not only follow me and hang out with me, it means do what I do. Because one day he's going to say, now you go. Now you go. Now you go with the message. Now you go with the hope. Now you go with food for the hungry. Now you go and heal the sick. Now you go. Now you go and share the message, which is the same story that we're talking about. So that's how God works. When a problem comes to you, know that not every problem has your name on it, right? You're not called to fix every problem. You, if you are a Christian, will have some natural compassion for every problem. They're not all yours to fix. But you will have some callings from time to time. And you can become the kind of person who listens. So... Just a couple uh, practical things. The first step is if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to follow Jesus. If you want to have purpose in your life, there's a lot of purpose for you, and you're going to love it. You're going to be on an adventure that's terrifying and hard and so fulfilling. But it starts with putting your trust in Jesus. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, you're hearing me on Facebook Live, Zoom, or in this building Today is the day. If you haven't figured out, he's God. You have, I mean, just from the story we just read, just be done with the, with the debate. Jesus is God. Jesus has come and laid down his life for our sins. He rose from the dead and said, if you put your faith in me, you'll be restored in relationship with God and you'll be off to the races. I mean, it's going to start there. But you start, you know, we can't, we can't pass it up. Don't, don't miss become a follower of Jesus. But, Cultivate the kind of heart like Nehemiah had that practices love your neighbor like this. He asked questions and he listened. That's huge, folks. If, if you are not at a place where when you see someone that might be hurting or just see someone that you never enter into relationship where you ask questions and listen, you're missing out. That is gold right there. If you, who have the Spirit of Christ live in you, will talk to people, ask questions, and listen. So much happens. Because when you listen, you give honor. Listen, if you are like some of the folks that are going out, doing ministry on the streets, giving out food and all that, the, the important part is not that they come up with a sandwich to someone. The important part is that they look a human being in the eye and ask questions and listen. And the sandwich might help, but that's not the thing. 
The thing is the human interaction, because at that point of human interaction, if you're someone who has enough compassion and love to ask questions and listen and at least pray a little, you're going to get compassionate. And you will have in place the process that's necessary for God to give you his burden when he wants to give you his burden so that you can take your place when it's time to build. All of you can do this. If you have Christ in you, you can slow down your role enough to listen to somebody, to listen to a story, and at least pray. And you'll discover when you hear a need, when you see a need, when you see a problem, when you see a brokenness that wants to be mended, that sometimes they'll be small, like there'll be someone whose body's hurting, and if you, you don't need a call of God for this one, heal the sick. He's already called you. Lay hands on that person if they'll let you and pray for God to have mercy and heal them, okay? I mean, that one's done. But... God can take it more because you're going to run into problems like Ted ran. Or here's another one, by the way. We've got a couple of doctors in our church, doctors Jason and Laura Desider. If you're listening, hi, Jason and Laura. Um, Jason's been going out a bit on the streets lately. But Jason and Laura, Laura, if you were around when I had my strokes, was my doctor, the neurologist in the hospital. So she spoke here. She's a really interesting person, right? She's a neurologist in the hospital, works with people that have brain injuries. Jason, her husband, is an emergency room physician. They work with people that are hurting. They pray. They've recently had God give them a burden. And they are right now in the vision prayer stage of creating a hospice for the underserved, for homeless people, for sometimes veterans, so that no one dies alone. And it's called No One Dies Alone. And they're, so they're in the process because they have a... They told me, we think this is the next stop in our journey that God has for us. So they're praying and seeking and planning and counseling and getting licensing and looking for land to where they're going to create, God willing in this time, a hospice so that people who are going to die, die not on the street, but in a bed where there's love and care. Now, is that amazing? Now, who would have thought of that? Why? Because you cultivate a heart that listens Secondly, a heart that prays. Take needs to the Lord in prayer. Practical steps for us, folks. Be people who love our neighbors by choosing to listen and ask questions, and then choosing to pray, and being willing to listen to the heartbeat of the Lord when he puts a burden on your heart that grows kind of beyond natural compassion, which will happen to you. You might hear about the children's ministry and take a moment to pray for the children's ministry because you heard Ron say, well, my daughter's at UC Santa Barbara, so we're down a teacher, and we don't have a lot of teachers to begin with, so maybe God's calling you. And you say, I think I'll pray about that. When you start praying, watch out. Very often, the very thing that, God pr that you're praying for God to fulfill, he uses you to fulfill <laughs> You know, if you ever come to me and say, Ron, I noticed there's a big lack in the church, and we don't have this, I always think, oh, God's calling you to fulfill that need. That's why. <laughs> but, so if you notice a lack, be careful before you bring it to me, because I'm going to ask you, are you the one? <laughs> okay, so anyway, pray. <laughs> Learn God's word so that like nehemiah you can pray according to his will with confidence 
This is so simple. I'm giving you just a couple at the front of this series. Listen and ask questions and listen. Pray. Spend some time getting to know the Bible so that God can speak to you and so that you can pray according to his word. And then finally, be the kind of person who's ready to say yes. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want you to take control of my life. You are Lord, I am not. I pray your will, your way, your time. I don't pray my will when I want it in my way. Isn't that how we often pray? Instead, I can pray, what do you want? How do you want to do it? When do you want to do it? And I'm okay with it. That's right. And then when I don't like your plan, and I don't like your way, and I don't like your timing, which is usually what that happens, right? You're like, God, you're late. God, you didn't do it my way, and I didn't even like we did in the first place. His way is always best. His time is always right. His will is always best. If we say yes, Lord, I will follow you wherever you lead me. We will find purpose and fulfillment and joy and meaning and all kinds of trouble that he will solve. There will be trouble, and then he'll solve it. There will be trouble, but you won't be alone. And when you're not alone in your trouble because God is with you, it changes everything and it's worth the journey. And I'm telling you, when we get into this kind of lifestyle, life that's filled with compassion, that's filled with the knowledge of the word, that's filled with obedience and submission, then when it's time to build, we'll be able to take our place. We hope you've enjoyed this message. This weekly podcast is available on our website, gracevcf.org, where you can learn more about Grace Vineyard and our vision for people everywhere to know and worship God.